Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your chief investigator of images. I have had a very exciting morning trying to get into a royal palace. (laughs) I am in Kensington Palace and just the experience of coming into this building and into the gardens it, it sets you up for something special, and I am seeing something very special today. My guest today, Joanna, please introduce yourself. I am Joanna Marshner, senior curator here at Historic Royal Palaces. I'm based at Kensington Palace, the palace we're in today, and I am the curator of The Enlightened Princesses. And this exhibition excites me so much. It's putting three very prominent and important women back in a place of prominence and giving them the attention they deserve, isn't it? Yes, this is a wonderful opportunity for digging out histories which we were dimly aware of. We always thought, who was the person who made that decision? Who was the person who commissioned that architect? Who was the person who devised that garden plan? But this is the moment where Caroline of Ansbach, Augusta of Saxe-Gotha and Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz truly take the centre stage. It is so exciting. I think one of the things that increasingly strikes me the more research I do, particularly on 18th century, 19th century art and architecture, is how much of a prominent role women took in those decisions. That's coming through in the research for this exhibition, is it? That has come through loud and clear in the research for this exhibition. It has been revealing that as we worked through documents, letters, you know, books, worked through inventory lists, um, of the 18th century. It's just how important they they were. Their histories are very, very quickly subsumed, um, even as elite women, by the elite men around them. And those elite men are, just for the listeners to get some context, dare we mention the men. (laughs) These these women, um, Caroline was married to King George II. Um, Augusta was married to Frederick, who is George II and Caroline's oldest son. In fact, Prince Frederick, Prince of Wales, dies before his father. So Augusta is left then, still as a very senior woman at court and mother of the next king. Her son is King George III, who marries Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, who is the last of our princesses. So you have Caroline, her daughter-in-law, 
and then her daughter-in-law's daughter-in-law. Fabulous. So there's real continuity between these three women. But, but I suppose they get completely overshadowed, particularly if we think about George III. I mean, he's one of these extreme characters in history, isn't he? What you're seeing then in, in this exhibition, what I'm seeing, is quite how much of a hand these three women had in everything from, we're talking about ceramics and embroidery, we're surrounded by books and painting, but also in science, in music, in, in, in lots of different areas. This were three generations of um, clever German-educated princesses. Um, by reason of their Protestant faith, they were selected from shortlist to be the wives of the men who ruled Britain. But they were effective. They were lucky in that they achieved a really good relationship with their husbands yeah. to all intents and purposes. And indeed, in the case of Queen Charlotte, the last one, is Charlotte and George III's relationship was a truly loving yeah. one. And this gave them a place in which they present their own ambition, their own projects, and see their own, determine their own set of values mm. um, for this role that they'd inherited as a consort. As a consort. So their own intellectual pursuits, are they're able to invest in them, they're able to push things forward. And there's parts of this exhibition that show that, that things like astronomy and medicine and I mean, this is the time of immunisation and these all these different advances, and these women are part of that too. They certainly are. It's very interesting when you look back to how people saw the role of a monarch and the role of the person who stood at either his or her side. And the sort of traditional philosophies of the Renaissance said, of course, there is a defending and ruling. There's an upholding of the rule of law and there's defending the shores of a nation. But there also is a really important role to promote the interests of the nation and protect the big society. Mm, the big no. society, and that's the, a topical word, isn't it? Goodness. And the, these women, in fact, looked very assiduously at what is very nearly a job description. And given the sphere that they've been able to kind of carve out for them within their marriages, given their good relationships with their husbands, they had room to operate and they had confidence, to extend even bravery, mm. to, to take that... To, you know, to take that ambition and see that cast. And it starts off in their contribution to conditioning the sort of occasions that um, sit at the heart of court society. You can imagine in the 18th century, um, you know, there is competition for the court from the coffee houses and from the assembly rooms and from the pleasure gardens and the universities and making their own links with universities across Europe. The court is going to have to work very hard to be a place which remains a place of importance, the powerful conversations, the discussions everyone wants to be part of. Gosh, how fascinating. Um, I hadn't even thought of that. But of course, as you get all these alternative environments in which to share ideas and to push things forward, why would you want to come into, into the court as much? Yeah. Yep. Well, you make it a very attractive space and you fill it with people that people want to meet and you make it a place of great conversation. And this is where, you know, in that first generation, Caroline has invited Sir Isaac Newton. She has invited Edmund Halley. She has invited Jonathan Swift, Alexander. Pope, John Gay, extraordinarily sparkling, vibrant, even controversial figures into the court, but it makes it a lively place of gathering. And in the train of that, of course, you then have 
a community of people who are then drawn into the educational programs for the children. Yes. And then imagine, you know, being Caroline's youngest son and being taught maths by Sir Isaac Newton. Oh, my goodness. That's um, it. But it, it, it continues a very long tradition of this sort of vibrant court. But it's a court that's under stress at this point, isn't it? And things are changing in terms of the royal family. I want to bring us to our painting because yeah. we we can have a lot of these conversations through this remarkable individual whose painting we've chosen to look at. What painting is it and why are we looking at it? Well, we, <laughs> we are sitting looking at George Stubbs' portrait of Queen Charlotte's Nilgai. A Nilgai is a form of Indian antelope. So this is a fetching picture of a really rather pretty beast underneath a spreading oak tree, a rather English scene I have to see with this little animal looking out. But the Nilgai um, was presented to the Queen as a sort of appropriation of empire. Uh, during the later part of the 18th century is um, after the British defeat in the American wars of independence, their imperial ambition turns from the West and begins to look to the East with an increasing interest in the Indian subcontinent and eventually into Australasia. And as part of that exploration um, of, you know, that extraordinary continent, you have then the bringing back of its flora and fauna, which is then prized, celebrated and promoted by the Queen through her gardens. And the Nilgai comes to live in the Royal Garden at Kew. Unbelievable. So we have this gorgeous little antelope taken over from India. Just the one. As far as we know, it's just the <laughs> Poor one. Poor lonely yeah, antelope. Right. But, but then living in Kew. But living at Kew. And this time, of course, there is, you know, royal gardens have become, as this sort of entrepot of empire, they are going to look at the economic value. Is this an animal you could ride? Is this an animal you could farm? Is this an animal that tastes nice? What um, are the conclusions of those? That I, that I, that I don't know. It doesn't look particularly rideable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, alongside other animals, we also know that the Queen Charlotte had a zebra, which had come from South Africa. Um, I've had two, but one of them died. But the other was much loved and much prized and much admired. Um, she had kangaroos, she had dingoes, they had come from Australia, and so on. You know, this menagerie is far more than just a collection of pretty animals. Mm. This is beginning to look at um, economic biology. Wow, because that's the interesting thing, isn't it? We can trace royal menageries right the way back and obviously the famous one is in the Tower of London with the elephant but this idea that this is more than just displaying curiosities but actually an intellectual curiosity in the creatures their science their their makeup but then also what value do these creatures have economic yes you know to this nation that's fascinating and however it does have its artful moment through the auspices of Dr William Hunter who in fact was an obstetrician to the Queen, a Scottish doctor who had travelled to London, determined to follow um, his interest in women's health. Well, I was fascinated to see a book of his midwifery uh, on the way in. His diagram of the baby in utero is stunningly drawn. It is beautiful. But he so he is the leading expert. And midwife to the and Queen. And midwife to the Queen. Right. But he also was a friend of um, George Stubbs, who himself, though best known as an animal painter, was also extremely interested in anatomy and indeed had made his own studies about comparing the anatomy of different forms of wildlife, trying to compare a bird and 
four-legged animal with a human and seeing whether he could see similarities in bone structure. So we have then, you know, the doctor and the artist coming together in a very interesting way. And Queen Charlotte lent the Nilgai to Hunter to take the Nilgai to Stubbs to have its portrait made. And here we are looking then at the, um, the resulting painting, which is a beautiful painting of the little animal. It is beautiful. And I think the thing is about really fine artists, this is something we explore in the podcast, is what is that essence of quality? What is it that distinguishes one artist painting a horse from another artist painting a horse? And, of course, Stubbs is most famous for his horse images, but he was so de- devoted, as you say, to anatomy. He trained for five years, I think, in, in, um, in terms of actually yes. dissecting and, yes. and looking at the internal yes. mechanisms of these yes. creatures. And that is what he manages to do with his art. It's almost what you get with Leonardo with that sort of inside-out creation of of a figure. And I think we really see that here. He is scrutinising this beast, isn't he? It is a proper animal that actually looks out of the landscape at you. And but, it's, it, the landscape's interesting too. I mean, we can come back to that. Yeah. But in terms of what he's doing with the creature, he's doing it from life then, is that right? Yes, he, he has done this from life. Interestingly, the Nilgai goes on to have, you know, other great moments in oh, which right. it, it, you know, it makes its mark. When the animal finally dies, it goes back to the London teaching hospitals and it is then formally dissected in the interests of anatomical science and animal sciences. Oh, my goodness. And we know that this happened then, again, under the auspices of William Hunter and his brother John. And while preparing for this exhibition, I was in the Hunterian, um, which is part of Glasgow University, and found myself talking to the head of the anatomy school, which is part of the medical school there, and he revealed to his astonishment and mine that, of course, he still has wet specimens from the real Nilgai, which are part of the teaching collections there. Oh, my goodness, from that actual... This This, one? This one, yes. Oh, my goodness, did you see them? Yes. (gasps) It is the Nilgai's eyeball. Oh my which goodness. is still part of the wet specimen collection. You see, this is where research just gets so exciting, isn't it? Where the connections, the connections build up. Go through. Yes. But again, I think this is something that is important to remember with uh, how we separate. I, I talk about this a lot, but the idea we separate out our arts and our sciences mm. so distinctly now—they were very connected. And Stubbs is a great example of that because actually he wasn't a formally trained artist, was he? He he was pretty much self-taught yes. with his painting. Mm-hmm. His love really was. Was anatomy. anatomy. Yes. And, and indeed deep interest, midwifery yes. too, because that's another yes. thing they had in common. Yes. yes. So that, so you can see that then the friendship group then with William Hunter and Stubbs becomes a very logical <laughs> thing. And the fact that the access then given to this collection of unusual, extraordinary animals, which may not have been, uh, certainly not part of many people's experience, through Hunter's connection with his royal client, is becomes all important. And it is a big thing for him to get royal patronage, isn't it? Because uh, Stubbs has done a number of portraits, but his reputation is secured through these amazing equestrian paintings yes. that all the good and the great want mm. to own. This particular painting is 1769 and as I understand it he, he's already been painting for some time at this point so he's he's, he's reaching a, a good level of his skill isn't he um, it, do you think this is sort of him at his finest or 
He's famous for those prancing horses. He is famous for his prancing horses. And, and while I'm very fond of the real Neil Guy, perhaps even more stunning is the, his portrait of the royal zebra. I haven't seen the zebra, but I have seen the kangaroo. You have seen the kangaroo. And that, again, is astonishing, because isn't it the first depiction of a kangaroo, which he manages to get? So so he's doing the whole menagerie. He's doing all of the beasts. He is using the menagerie as a valuable source um, of of inspiration for these pictures, yes. And in a way, I mean, to me, that just sums up the Enlightenment in many ways, because it's this sort of keenness to take every bit of information that you can out of a source. So out of a creature like this, you get art, you get painting, you get science, you get it's medicine. medicine. Get, yes, yes. And there's a cataloguing mm-hmm. element to it as well. Mm-hmm. It, it's so off mm-hmm. its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but how does it sit alongside the other pieces in this part of the exhibition then? Because I'm very aware we're surrounded by glorious pieces everywhere. We're sitting in a part of the exhibition which looks at how the projects undertaken by these women move out of the palaces, through their gardens, and eventually into a wider world. Mm. Going back to this early sort of self-exhortation to promote and protect the interests of the nation, promoting its well-being by encouraging its crafts and its industries, is a small extension. So we are sitting surrounded by Spitalfield silk, by ceramics from the factories to which those ladies gave their patronage. You know, many people may recall that there is a Queensware. Queensware is a ceramic type produced by Wedgwood. It is not the grandest of porcelains. It is a rather fine, gently cream-coloured earthenware. But the Queen allows her name to be given to it. For Wedgwood, of course, is the most extraordinary thing. This gives him a role imprimatur to his work. But for the Queen, this, of course, has its own benefits too. For this generation of the family, there are wares with her name sitting on the tea tables of the middling sort, not only up and down through this country, but beginning to circulate through a wider world. I mean, this is the beginning of our royal plates and cups, isn't it? Goodness! And that was the first time Wedgwood had a royal patent. So Wedgwood's first patron is Queen Charlotte. Gosh, I didn't know yes. that. Okay. And, of course, you know that these industries have their kind of sort of links in the wider world. It's completely echoed then by the raw women's interest then in colonisation initiatives, mm-hmm. keeping a great interest, meeting and knowing the people who were actually spearheading these initiatives. So, for instance, we have a painting yeah. in the exhibition which records the delegation of Yamacraw Indians. The Yamacraw were a small part of the Creek Nation mm-hmm. from Georgia in the American Eastern Seaboard. And with colonisation attempts through a London-based consortium called the Georgia Society, based in the city of London, James Oglethorpe not only made exploration and incursions into Georgia, but he also then encouraged the Yamacraw to accompany him back to London. They, in their own turn, had very good reasons for actually trying to get recognition to their own territorial rights within any kind of new arrangement that might be made. And they were entertained here at Kensington Palace as part of their London visit. And we have information through the newspapers about preparing for this visit and, you know, a deal of... 
discussion about how best it should be managed and what should we do and the gift exchanges and who should meet whom. And then, of course, afterwards, there is a kind of sort of post-mortem on this and how did it go? And this was this had all been very interesting and very useful. And the Georgia Society decided that the moment should be recorded um, with a painting. And Verelst is commissioned by the Society to record the portraits of all of the people who were part of that discussion, including the Yamacraw delegation, just after their return from Kensington Palace. So, you know, while they were here, they met both the King, they also met the Queen, and indeed, um, who is Caroline, Queen Consort. Um, And she also ensured that given that the Yamacraw brought the young heir to their own family dynasty is that he should meet her son. So you had three generations, each with a formal exchange of courtesies. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This idea of gift giving and exchange is huge, isn't it? I think that's that's one of the things that I see coming through here. But but also, you know, with the stubs as well, the idea that this is exchange of ideas and physical objects that then will go back to different places and influence those places in turn because you see a huge influence on, on British ceramics from exchanges across the East and and the idea that these women have got a part in, in these, these, these events. But I like this idea that they're committing things to paint, that they are having paintings and artworks made to commemorate the things that they're achieving. So you've got that, as you say, the painting of the delegation, but do we even know where this stubs would have been exhibited originally? Who was meant to see it? I don't know. We don't know. Because it's intriguing, isn't it, about who would have seen the painting? That's some more research we need to do, isn't it? (laughs) But there's something else that strikes me very much about this stubs, and that's the background. So it's very deliberately an oak that the creature is under. There's this sense of the English oak. But it's the landscape, it's very Arcadian, it's very dreamy, and it fits beautifully with the the ideas of Pope. And, you know, we mentioned these Arcadian 
idealists who are coming up. Is that something that we see them being influenced by in the court then? Um, the creation of royal gardens is deeply important to the princess's agency. Caroline arrives with this new dynasty having to kind of sort of, you know, make its way and establish its place in the, the sort of English psyche. There was enormous suspicion and indeed a good deal of opposition to the Hanoverian succession from the Stuart claimants to the throne, who in many ways actually had a nearer claim but had been deemed unsuitable because of their religious affiliation. Interesting. And for this generation, as they come in, it's very interesting seeing that one of the first things that Caroline does, particularly on acquiring the country estates, which are down, you know, Richmond Lodge, which is at Kew, um, is that she calls together the leading gardeners of the day. Yes. There are the old traditional gardeners, Henry Wise, who still work in a kind of French way and who are wonderfully expert at topiary and, and, and the kind of great Baroque gardens of the 17th century. But she also draws in William Kent and Charles Bridgman, who begin to be the gardeners of a proto-landscape gardening tradition. And her gardens, both the one that surrounds this palace at Kensington and the one that surrounded Richmond Lodge at Kew, begun to be the beginnings of these beautiful Arcadian controlled landscapes through which... On public days, members of the public would take their way in the way that you can still walk, say, around Stowe Garden, happening as you walk through the groves and past the dancing lawn on little pavilions. And within those um, pavilions, she set up um, statuary in celebration of contemporary science and another one there was a waxwork celebrating mythic origins of the British nation with Merlin and Elizabeth I and so on. This interest in gardens is more than embraced by her daughter-in-law, Augusta, who, with her husband, Frederick, in the first instance, start making a garden immediately adjacent to Caroline's at Kew. They don't get very far, and Frederick dies. And it is left to Augusta, with the help of the architect William Chambers and her friend John Stuart, third Earl of Butte, Lord Butte, to make a garden over the next 20 years, which still leaves a legacy in Kew Gardens that we know today. I've just been working on this particular topic of, of the emergence of the Arcadian Thames, mm. but the influence of Pope's poetry, the fact that he wrote about an Arcadia, but the idea that Arcadia could be in England, that this is something actually Actually, that it chimes with the time, doesn't it? Because it creates an idea of what Englishness is, which, again, we still live with today. But it also kind of goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning about the idea that the court and the nobility are having to position themselves alongside other institutions, alongside different vibrant places. So to create gardens that are idyls, that are designed to be meandered through, rather than these rigid, cut, clipped, boxed, formal royal gardens. That's almost a little bit like um, they're branching out. You know, brand royal is going large scale. Yes, yes, yes. In, in many ways, you can see that this is a century through which a royal brand begins to emerge. Mm. At the beginning of the century, you still have your monarch and your consort 
almost on pedestals. Absolutely. Really very, very remote, perhaps from a more general public. But what you find through this generation is partly the circumstances in London. We have no Versailles. Uh We can't remove our court from the great operation of the city. Um, There isn't a noble opera as a balance to a town opera. Here, everyone goes to the same theatre. Everyone travels through the same streets to get there. the, compared to continental Europe, the, the number of great elite families is small. Mm. In Europe, there may be many, many thousands. In this country, you can count those great traditional families on just a few hands, mm. which means that these princesses, you know, from their um, German upbringings, it was absolutely appropriate that they treated with industrialists and business people and scholars and artists and architects and were happy doing that. This notion of English politeness, that you make your way with whoever, mm-hmm. it is appropriate. There, there will be a conversation to be had and you will have it. It feeds through to our royal family today. I mean, I think what's so interesting about this exhibition is I see so many parallels with the way princesses continue to, to perform on the world stage. They take similar roles, similar interests in you know, trade and, and empire, if we still call it empire. But there's a blueprint being set by these three women. There is a blueprint being set. And I think, again, it goes back to this precious charge of promoting and protecting. What you see over the 18th century is the executive powers of the monarch, be it a male or female, begin to drop away. The growth of empire means that you need a professionalism of government. You need a big infrastructure to keep that going. And then you have to look to the role of your monarch. Where do they sit? They're not necessarily going to be in every single meeting because they can't be. And, you know, the fruitful, useful role, which remains and indeed is all the more important as British interests across the world um, get larger and larger, is that you become a heart, you become a centre of nationhood, you become a figurehead, you are non-party political, you stand as a sort of compass there right in the middle. This is an area which would have been very familiar to these princesses, but by the 19th century, the century that follows this, this is the space which is left. So their successors move into this space. Mm. We could call it a feminization of the monarchy, but it is these women who have made that actually a very successful, very vibrant place to be, an entirely worthy space to be occupying and ensuring then that the national good and a sense of nationhood is protected. I'm always struck by the fact that certain figures come to epitomise moments and movements. And a lot of what I'm seeing here, of course, is epitomised in Queen Victoria and what she then takes on. But it's this idea that others have come before and blazed the trail first. These three women, to me, feel like precursors to what then becomes a very feminised monarchy, doesn't it, under Victoria? Mm. And she's learnt a lot from watching their example, I think. Yes, and then very interesting to see Victoria debate with herself. I may be queen, but I'm also a mother and I'm also a wife. And how you then reconcile that in this world of monarchy and nationhood. And in many ways, of course, you need all of that. And... In the end, the image of empire is, 
you know, the little elderly lady bowed over with the cares of family and nationhood who has sort of given it, you know, given her life as a life of service for a kind of greater good. And she has become a mother of it all. In a funny way, it all comes back to this Stubbs, doesn't it? This idea that in a paint, simple painting of an antelope, there is so much politics, there is so much history, there is, there is there's history of art here, but there is there's so much more. It's the time coming into focus and the court and the individuals, these patrons of the art that, that we're seeing coming through. It's absolutely fascinating. When does the exhibition open? I believe it's tomorrow, isn't it? The exhibition opens on Thursday, oh, which is the 22nd of June, and it goes on... Um, until the 12th of November. So 22nd of June to the 12th of November. And I cannot recommend it enough. I'm so excited and so privileged to be able to see it first. I'm going to come back and have a really good proper explore. I highly recommend you all come along. How can people find out more about it? Can they go to the website? They can go to the website. And they can follow you on Twitter. It's Royal Historic Palaces. Historic Historic Royal Palaces. And I will post some information on the Art Detective website as well. Thank you so much for joining me, Joanna. It's been so so informative and enlightening and a period of history that I'm getting increasingly fascinated by this this 18th to 19th century period thank you Art Detective listeners for tuning in if you've enjoyed this you can subscribe to the podcast which is at historyhit.com slash artdetective or you can follow me on Twitter I'm Dr Yanina Ramirez thank you so much Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 